With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You're going up against like big pasta. Going up against big pasta and going up against hundreds of years of tradition. So that was, yeah, that was daunting. And a lot of people told me it was a terrible idea, including some of the people in North Dakota and Maureen Fant, the Encyclopedia of Pasta translator, and my wife, Janie. They all said it was <laughs> no. a bad idea. They said there's already so many shapes out there. No, what the world doesn't need a new pasta shape. But I, I really felt that a lot of shapes out there, most pasta shapes to me are mediocre at best. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Did we talk about the pasta at all last time? Probably not, right? It was just about the sporkful. Um, I don't think okay. so. Yeah, just about the sporkful. This is all new information. <laughs> I set out to invent a new pasta shape. And, um, you know, originally I was inspired by... Thomas Edison. Some of the sort of... <laughs> no, I was inspired more by Alex Bloomberg, by like seminal podcasts of the mid 20 teens, like uh, the Planet Money t-shirt thing that he right. did or startup kind of like um, first off, just, you know, when the podcasting boom first hit this idea that you could release podcasts where you would have a, a one long epic story told in multiple parts with cliffhangers like yeah. a streaming show, like a show on Netflix, like that was something that was new to me. And so I was like, what would my version of that be? Like, could I tell a story on my food podcast that would be over multiple episodes? And also, like, you're working on a project that is almost forward-facing or audience-facing. So, like, the process of telling that story creates something that the audience can engage with further. Right. But I mean, the first impulse was just, like, I want to tell a big, epic story. And then it was like, well, what would the story be? What if I set out to invent a new food, you know, because like I was looking at Alex Bloomberg's work at like in particular and it was like, well, he start, he did this, you know, did startup where he kind of told the story of the start of his business. What if I tried to launch a business? I thought that seemed like it could be fun. And I also felt like, you know, I had largely built my career on my opinions about food. I'm not a chef. I'm really more of an audio professional who loves to eat. And I thought, well, if I... You know, like after all these years of like having opinions about food and building a career on my opinions about food, at least partly, you know, I started to wonder, like, do I actually know what I'm talking about? And I was like, well, if I could invent a food and if it was good and people liked it, then that might answer that question. So what food did you land on? Well, so I, I had some criteria. I, I wanted a food that would be inexpensive and shelf stable so that you know, it could be shipped easily, at least anywhere in the, in the U.S., because I wanted all my listeners to be able to participate in it. I didn't want it to be expensive, and I didn't want it to be something you had to go to some, like, boutique store in a trendy neighborhood of a city to get. 
And then I want it to be like a basic food that everyone knows and loves and cares about and has opinions about. And so pasta checks all those boxes. And so what's the problem with pasta today? Well, how much time do you have, Sam? I mean, that's a big... So, <laughs> big question. Yeah. The hard-hitting questions. I have identified three criteria by which I believe all pasta shapes should be judged. Okay, so there's forkability, which is how easy is it to get the pasta shape on your fork and keep it there? Sauceability, how well does sauce adhere to the shape? And tooth sink ability, which is how satisfying is it to sink your teeth into it? And what I think is that there's a lot of pasta shapes out there that are good at one or two of those things. There's almost none that nail all three. So what are your thoughts on just regular spaghetti? 30 seconds into episode one of my series on this sub on this quest, which we called Mission Impossible, uh, I get up on stage and declare that spaghetti sucks. <laughs> and I stand by that claim. I mean, look, all, all, with the understanding, like all pasta is pretty good. And if I'm hungry, I'll eat any pasta you put in front of me and be happy to eat it. But like compared to many other shapes, spaghetti is not good. It's incredibly simple. Uh, it has a very low surface area in relation to volume, so sauce does not adhere to it well. It does not contact many of your teeth. You get danglers on the fork that splatter sauce all over the place. It's hard to get it on the fork. It's hard to keep it there. It's hard to compose a good bite, um, and nothing sticks to it. So um, it's just not a very good shape. It is like the oldest shape, and and so there's a lot of romanticism attached to it, and it's very popular. Um, but also because it's one of the original, the like the original pasta shape, um, it's also very primitive. And I just sort of looked at it and was like, you know, this this shit has not been updated yeah. <laughs> in a long time, okay? Like, we need some fresh eyes on the pasta shape situation. And also, there's like, there's not just, you know, like a dozen pasta shapes. There's a lot, right? Right. They're, 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 well, so I, and I spoke to uh, Maureen Fant, who translated the Encyclopedia of Pasta, which is basically the Bible on this subject. And by her count, there are three to four hundred shapes of pasta, wow. which go by about twelve hundred different names. Oh so like you, you could have the same <laughs> shape in two different regions of Italy with two different names, but it's really the same shape. I actually thought three or four hundred was less than I would have guessed. So I was like, there's only three or four hundred. That's not. That shouldn't, it shouldn't be hard to find something that no one thought of yet. So I, I was a little cocky early on. <laughs> I talked to her and then I also went to North Dakota to learn about durum wheat, which is what is used to make semolina, which is the, what the, the flour that traditionally used to make pasta. Uh, and most of the durum wheat that is used in pasta made in America is grown in North Dakota. And they have a pasta lab there where they develop new strains of wheat. So I went there and learned all about that. It's awesome. They have like a greenhouse where they're growing wheat, but then they have rooms that look like like a high school chemistry lab where they have like beakers and Bunsen burners, and they're like cooking pasta in beakers on special stovetops, and then they have a special machine there called the texture analyzer that actually like uses this, that presses down into, into the pasta to measure the exact amount of bite force required to bite through the pasta. So like, I would... I feel like experiencing that, I would be a little bit intimidated. Like, here I am, just one man with a new idea for a pasta shape, and there's a literal whole lab of people with, you know, bite force analyzers that you're going up against. You're going up against, like, big pasta. Going up against big pasta and going up against hundreds of years of tradition. So 
So that was, yeah, that was daunting. And a lot of people told me it was a terrible idea, including some of the people in North Dakota and Maureen Fant, the Encyclopedia Pasta translator, and my wife, Janie. They all said it was a bad idea. They said there's already so many shapes out there. No, what the world doesn't need a new pasta shape. But I, I really felt that a lot of shapes out there, most pasta shapes to me are mediocre at best. So when did you start actually, I guess, putting a little bit of uh, putting your money where your mouth is and actually investing into the creation of this? Because a lot of it probably is just like up here in your head thinking, okay, how can I actually create a new kind of pasta? Maybe there's a little bit of experimentation in the kitchen, but when do you decide, okay, like let's, let's uh, put some production behind this? Yes. That was probably about a year, year and a half in is when I really started trying to make something. And and that's why I first I had to get a die made. A die is like the mold for the pasta shape. I had to get someone to make me a bunch of little discs like that. But instead of making a star, I would make my shape. That turned out to be very hard because there's only a few die makers in the world and they have much bigger, more important clients than me. I had to get the die maker to work with me. And then there was a lot of refinings. It wasn't just getting them to give me the time of day at first. It was like, all right, let's try it. And then I had to get a pasta company. So you have to get the dye and then you take the dye. I just wanted to take the dye to a pasta company who would actually manufacture the pasta. I mean, first of all, it was just interesting. I was learning a lot. I learned a lot about how pasta is made and was surprised to see how much of it is still, you know, kind of based on feel, kind of like tweaking and tweaking a, a recipe or an approach or the settings on a machine until, you know, in just trial and error. You know, I tried to keep reminding myself of what I felt I know and what I'm good at which is that I do think that I'm good. I I don't know anything about manufacturing, but I do think I know some things about eating. And I'm, and I put a lot of thought into that. And so I'm, I'm good at breaking down the eating experience into its component parts. Was that hard to trust yourself in doing something that was so out of your depth? I mean, like, sure, like, you know, knowing how to critique food was very squarely within your area of expertise, but now you're surrounded by this whole new process. And like, was it difficult to, I guess, trust that in the midst of all this stuff that you didn't know? It it got harder and harder to trust it as the process went on because, you know, now I've tried like 10 iterations you know, like for I, I spent a year eating all these different pasta shapes and trying to form opinions about them. Then uh, narrowing down to my shape, you at a certain point, you don't know what tastes good anymore. So that became hard because then I as it got better and better, and we were finding the shape and I'm like, this is really getting good. I think I might be onto something here. But then I was like, but do I know anything at this point? Like, I don't I don't know what I know. So I, I, I started off more confident, but then the more I ate and the more I tasted, the more I felt like it was hard to have any perspective. So at the very end, I was like, I need to, I, I think this might be done. I think it might be done and I think it might be good, but I, I need to talk to other people. So I shared it with sort of like friends and family and, and people in the world of food whose opinions I respect. And they were so excited and they were like, this is amazing. People were like, when is it going on sale? We're going to buy it immediately. That's huge. These were like important people in the world of food. And also like my parents were high on it, but like that, <laughs> you know, take that with a grain of salt, you know? And so the fact that all these people were so enthusiastic, that was the first time that I was like, oh, maybe it really is good. 
Yeah. And there's like hype building around it, I guess, at this point. Right. right and also right. at the same time, you're letting your listeners know progress on this journey, right? Well, I was recording, recording, I mean, for years and years and then refining. We, we probably had a couple hundred hours of recordings. When the pasta shape was pretty much finished, we launched the series beginning of March 2021. We called it Mission Impossible. And the idea was to tell the whole story of this three-year quest in five podcast episodes. To tell a big epic story with cliffhangers, just as I you know, wanted to do at the beginning. The series launched in early March and culminated with the fifth and final episode coming out. And then when that episode came out, the pasta shape launched and was available through Sfolini's website, the pasta company. And what was the response? Well, so the initial batch of pasta we made was 3,700 boxes. I originally wanted to make 5,000, but then because of all these supply chain COVID issues, we could only get actual physical paper boxes, 3,700. And the 3,700 boxes sold out in less than two hours. Were you expecting that at all? No. <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, I couldn't believe it. What were you feeling? I mean, I was just like, this is bananas. Huge adrenaline rush. And then, you know, but then it's like you so quickly go from like, this is amazing. It's like, oh, no, wait, is it selling too fast? Because we're like, we don't have any more pasta. But the orders are coming in. We're out of boxes. What are we going to do? We started selling five pound bags, like in a giant Ziploc bag, basically, for three days until we could sort out the box situation. So it's incredibly exciting for sure, you know, and gratifying. And like, it was also like super exciting. Like my wife and kids were in the story and the creation of the pasta. They were super excited about it. And so it was exciting to share it with them and their friends and all that. And so how many boxes have you sold today? You know, I kind of stopped counting. Clearly <laughs> it's very successful. The last number that I got from Sfolini was we had sold over 200,000 pounds of pasta. 200,000 pounds, bro. It's a lot of pasta. That's a crap ton of pasta. We ended up selling a lot. So what is the, uh, what does the future of this project look like? Is this going to be private label? Are you going to keep the quality, but not worry about the brand? What is your thoughts moving forward? You know, when the initial dust settled, I was basically faced with three options of how to proceed with this pasta business that sort of dropped in my lap. Option one would be like the big swing option, which is that I could launch Sporkful brand foods and create other pasta shapes and or other food products. That would probably require raising hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars of investment. Trying to create a business, it would probably mean not being able to do my podcast anymore. It would have the highest potential upside, like maybe in five or 10 years, then I sell to Nabisco for $100 million. But it's also the most work and the most risk because there's no guarantee that any of my other products will succeed. And I don't really know anything about running a food business and getting on shelves and stores and doing all those things. The opposite extreme would be licensing. I own the IP. I own the patent and the trademark on the shape. I could license it to a select group of pasta companies and let them make it and they would just pay me a cut. I would make less money than if I owned the whole company, but it would also be less work and less risk and sort of becomes like a nice side income that hopefully will last for a number of years. The middle option was sort of you know, what you call private label, like store brand. In that case, I would still be responsible for manufacturing the pasta, but I wouldn't have to launch a brand and I don't have to worry about getting on store shelves. It's on their label. They already have the shelf space. All I have to do is work with a factory. Here's 100,000 of our boxes. You put your pasta in our boxes and send it back to us. I still have to work with a factory. 
more work than licensing, but less than launching a brand. So those are the three options that I was faced with. And after talking to a lot of folks and thinking a lot about it, I have decided that for now, I'm going to focus on licensing, which was the option that involved probably less money, but also less risk and less work and a better work-life balance. And also I can continue to do my podcast, which I love doing. That's what I'm doing now. I may also explore private label next year. I want to see how it all starts functioning when things get into stores. As we sit here today, the Svolini's Cascatelli by Sporkful, as we call it, is just starting to get in stores. It's in the fresh market, which has about 170 locations across the eastern half of the U.S. And restaurants also as the fall and winter go on. They just announced on the Trader Joe's podcast that it's going to be in Trader Joe's. I'm licensing it to Trader Joe's. Yeah, that is a different version of the pasta from the ones Fellini makes. So Fellini is the original Cascatelli. That's the one with my name and my logo on the box. That's the one that we told about in the story. But then Trader Joe's will make one. It won't have my name on it. It's a different version. It's their version. It'll just say Trader Joe's Cascatelli. And then I'm also working on some other opportunities. And then maybe... I'll explore other private label options. I also uh, want to try to find someone in Italy to make the pasta for me, you know, like for Europe, European sales. So if you know anyone, Sam, tell them to call me. (laughs) (laughs) Will do. Looking back at this whole experience, I feel like it's pretty interesting that you've launched a successful, what could be a company, just because like you were interested in an idea and you wanted to tell a story. Is that something you'd recommend? Is that something that you think more people should have in terms of approach to business? What would be like your main lessons that you pulled away from this experience? Obviously, persistence in the face of setbacks is very important. And it took a lot of persistence over three years to make this happen. Persistence and also like knowing when to shift and change because things aren't working right. You can't just keep banging your head into a concrete wall. So there were certain things that were important to me that I let go of and made big changes in the plan in order to succeed. But I never let go of the fundamental goal of creating a great pasta shape. Striking that balance between like an intense persistence, but also being flexible when necessary. Knowing which things to stay persistent on and which things to shift on and when, I think those things ended up working out pretty well for me. In terms of larger lessons, I mean, both in terms of starting the Sporkful podcast and launching this pasta shape, these were both things that I was really passionate about doing for the sake of doing them. I think too many people who start businesses today are like, I want to make money. How do I do it? And then they gin up some bullshit story about how this thing that they've created is new or different. When you start off focusing on your passion, even if it doesn't become a multi-billion dollar business, at least you're doing what you love. I just would encourage people to like focus a little bit more on what makes you happy and what you're passionate about. And if you can make a living doing that, you'll be much better off. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, 
Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandazin. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.